This week on Life and Faith. We got this call late on a Friday afternoon and you know that the local social services are in trouble because they're phoning us. We've already got six kids in the house. So they say, well, Chris and Miriam, we know you've already got a full house, but is there any way you can take another one? And again, my wife's already saying yes. There's a, there's a pattern here. My wife is the yes person. And I'm like suspicious or worried or nervous. So I just say, just tell me something about this child so we can prepare. And they said, we can't tell you much. All we can tell you is he's a biter. And that freaked me out. We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the Isa army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. This is Life and Faith from CPX, and this week, Krish Kandaya from the UK. I think you're going to love this. Krish is a prolific author. He's a speaker and writer and social entrepreneur building partnerships across civil society. And he's the founder and director of Home for Good. It's a UK charity finding loving, stable homes for children in the care system and for young refugees. In an article in The Spectator, he asks, can we see potential in those in forgotten corners of our own society? Can we offer a place where vulnerable children can flourish? Krish Kandaya is very sensitive to the huge need for children in need of a home, and he's brimming with positivity and enthusiasm for the possibilities to meet that need. Krish Kandaya, thanks so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Lovely to be with you. Now, I'm going to ask you a lot about adoption and fostering. You have, tell me if I'm right, six or seven children, a mixture of birth, <laughs> adopted, fostered, that you and your wife, Miriam, have taken into your home, as well as many others fostered. But what's your place like? Must be busy. Oh, it's crazy busy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Particularly in lockdown. So there were eight of us living in lockdown. So my wife and I, and then we have six children who are permanent members of our family, three through birth one through adoption and two through long-term foster care. And we've been foster carers for the last 14 years. We've looked over after about 30 children in that time. Uh, some have stayed for a night, some have stayed for four years. <laughs> and we just want to be available to be helpful to vulnerable children in our nation right now. Well, I want to hear a lot about this. But first, I want to ask you about your mum and what she was mm. like and the influence she had on you in terms of your openness to this type of thing. That's a good question. My mum was brought up in India. She was born into an Indian family. Her mother was Indian, but her father was Irish. And her father went to fight in the Second World War. He died uh, in El Alamein in North Africa. And he, he was given the military cross for his bravery. But my mother and her two sisters were put into an orphanage because they were mixed race. They were seen to be socially unacceptable 
And so they weren't allowed to go and live with their Indian mother and they weren't allowed to live with the Irish wider family. So they were separated and put into three different orphanages, which is terrible. And it's been a driver for me to try and end the need for orphanages around the world. Orphanages are not the best place for children to grow up. Families are the best place for children to grow up. Anyway, so my mum ends up coming to the UK. Uh, she ends up nursing a grand aunt when she was 16, training to be a nurse in the local hospital. and. Britain was quite unreformed in those days. We were pretty racist. People used to throw bananas at her in the street and, and they were surprised she knew how to speak English or to eat with a fork. She thought uh, They thought that she lived in the jungle and you know li lived like Mowgli or something from Jungle Book. And my mum fought a kind of one-woman resistance campaign to this by opening up her house on a Friday evening, cooking up a massive vat of curry and rice and anyone who didn't feel they fit in, they were welcome at my mum's house. And that's how she met my dad. And then my mum and dad got married. And then my sister and I came along. And there were always strangers in our house. Mum was always hospitable. Uh, people would turn up at our house in the middle of the night and have some crazy story. And she'd, she'd end up welcoming them in, uh, giving them a cup of tea and then giving them a bed for the night. And I think my mum really modelled to me what hospitality can look like. Yeah, that's, she sounds amazing. And um and obviously a huge influence on the what your sort of attitude to this this type of activity what got you into the fostering kind of game if you like <laughs> to to begin with like how did that happen it's weird my wife and i had always talked about fostering and adoption even when we were dating mm. but we ended up having three kids in quite quick succession uh three kids in 3 years and we were under 30 and then my wife thought we had capacity to care for some more kids. And so we started the process to become foster parents because we thought we could, you know, we could do this. Um, to be honest, my wife was ahead of the game on this one. I was slow to pick up on this. I thought we'd added to global population growth through our three <laughs> children. We'd done enough. And I'd had this vision that one day our three kids who had come into our family together would leave our home together, maybe to go to university or work. And it would just be like the old days, my wife and I. <laughs> And we'd go on long romantic walks along beaches. And, you know, we lived in Oxford at that time. And it's a long way to the beach. We'd commute to the beach. We could do that. We could do those little city breaks that couples do. And a few things happened to me. One was some friends of ours in their 60s uh, became foster parents for the first time to older teenagers. And that really challenged me. I thought if they could do that at that stage in their life, well, maybe I should be considering it at my stage in my life. And the other thing that happened to me, it's an occupational hazard. I, I, I'm a Christian and part of my Christian spirituality is to read the Bible and reading the Bible, almost every other page, God describes himself as a father to the fatherless or a protector of widows and orphans. And I suddenly began to join the dots. I don't know how I hadn't seen it before, but I realized that if I was going to be an effective, obedient Christian, that needed to influence the way I did my family. And if God cared about vulnerable children, then I needed to, too. So those were the two major factors that started me on the process to become a foster parent. Sounds like reading the Bible might be a dangerous occupation. <laughs> that, that might be why it's been banned in so many countries. It does really <laughs> change your life. Um, now, tell us about you've had lots of as you, as you mentioned, you've had lots of children come to you. Um, they're, they're clearly coming from uh, really distressing situations. What's what are the types of typical things that would lead to a kid being, you know, you've been getting the call to say we need emergency care for someone? 
Yeah, well, the situation is pretty similar in the UK and the US and Australia and New Zealand. The majority of kids that come into care come because of neglect or abuse. In the UK, it's between 65 and 70% of kids in care have that experience. And it's sexual violence, it's physical violence against them. Uh, often it's addiction related. So the parents might be addicted to some kind of substance and it just diminishes their ability to actually care for their kids. Uh, I think most parents, even those that have their children removed from them, love their kids, but um, sadly they're not able to express that love in an appropriate way. So kids come into care in all sorts of circumstances. Remember, we got a call at midnight I think my wife answered the phone and said, yes, I don't think she was fully awake. But two hours later, a police van pulls up outside her house. Two lovely female police officers get out and they open the back of the van and four children come out. And they're, they're in our lounge at like 2 a.m. in the morning. And they look like kind of rabbits caught in the headlights of a car. They're shell shocked. They've just come from the police station. They've been removed from a domestic violence situation. And our job as foster parents is just to make them feel safe and secure that this is an okay place. It's going to be okay. We're going to look after you. And and that's hard, particularly when kids come from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds. Uh, these children from a Muslim background, we've had kids from all sorts of faith backgrounds and no faith background, and how to help them know that this is going to be a safe family for you. That's our top priority. I'm trying to imagine your house. I'm hoping you have a big house. <laughs> I wish we had a big house. We, we've got a lot of small rooms, so that kind of works. And we've we've extended everywhere we can. Our loft has been converted. And uh, our, all the kids that can share in the UK, um, foster children can't share a room with anybody. So, you know, our birth kids were very kind and they were willing to share. So we made room. We made it possible. Tell us about the boy who came to your house with with just this description, he's a biter. Uh, and why is, why is that such an important story for you? We got this call late on a Friday afternoon and you know that the local social services are in trouble because they're phoning us. We've already got six kids in the house. Mm. So they say, well, Chris and Miriam, we know you've already got a full house, but is there any way you can take another one? And again, my wife's already saying yes. There's a, there's a pattern here. My wife is the yes person. And I'm like suspicious or worried or nervous. So I just say, just tell me something about this child so we can prepare. And they said, we can't tell you much. All we can tell you is he's a biter. And that freaked me out. Promising. And I go, well, what, what, what does he bite? Does he bite things? I can cope with, you know, my furniture getting bite marks. We, we've got a cat. I've got strange visitors that come. But if he bites people, well, that's different, isn't it? Is that safe? You know, what's he being exposed to? Is that safe for my other kids? I, I'm kind of going into that mode. And then another part of my brain kicks in. It's the part of the brain I've got that, that reads the Bible and tries to talk to God and, and tries to have some kind of moral framework. And it says, hold on, biter, that's an inadequate description of a human person. You know, you and I, we're more than the worst thing we've ever done and more than the worst thing that's ever been done to us. This child is precious. He's valuable. He has intrinsic value, dignity and worth. That's what I believe. And if I believe that, that's got to affect the way that I treat this lad. And so in he came into our family. He bit loads of stuff, mainly sausages, actually, <laughs> which was fine. But there was a reason why he bit. And it was because he'd had eight different homes by the time he was three years old. And he'd got speech delay because he was so traumatized. He didn't know who he belonged to, who he was. Mm. And he just bit to let the world know that he was there, that he mattered. Mm. And it was an incredible journey for us. We, we looked after him for nine months and then he ended up being looked after by uh, a family member, an, an uncle and, and an aunt of his. 
And by the time he left us, he couldn't stop speaking. I, I wouldn't be surprised if one day he becomes uh, the Prime Minister of England. He could speak for England. And <laughs> it was such a joy to see that transformation. A, a boy that had speech delay when he arrived, now we can't stop him speaking when he leaves. There was something very precious about that for us. Absolutely. Now, your charity is Home for Good, and it's trying to find foster places for kids, trying to encourage people towards adoption. There are some pretty depressing statistics, aren't there, when it comes to children who are in these sorts of situations and where they end up. It's a, it's a very serious problem that you're trying to address, right? Yeah, kids that come into care and grow up in care and then age out of care, normally around 18, um, there are some pretty depressing statistics that go with their life chances. So um, care leavers make up 1% of the UK population, but they're 25% of the homeless population. So they're hugely overrepresented there. Um, in, in some areas, they, they make up 70% of the sex workers, our young women that have aged out of foster care. Um, 50% of the under 21 male prison population are young men who have aged out of care or have had care experience. So the care system isn't working for many of these children. And it's pretty depressing because, you know, my, my daughter, my eldest daughter went to university this year and she left home. But did she really leave home? You know, we get a phone call from her almost every day. If something needs fixing or she's in trouble, she'll call us. Uh, you know, we'll go down and help her. Well, when lockdown's not on and she's going to come home for Christmas and still half her stuff is here. So, you know, we don't expect kids that have had a stable upbringing to be ready to face the world on their own with no parental contact once they hit 18 and go to university or go to work. But we expect kids who have had the most traumatic starts in life to be ready to face life without any ongoing help after they reach uh, adulthood. And that's completely crazy. So I'm a firm believer that no one should age out of care. You never age out of needing a family. And whether it's through fostering or adoption, there ought to be a family that surrounds and is available to these children for as long as they need it. You, you really are an advocate for permanent places in families. There's a really uh, special extra layer, isn't there? Important extra layer here when people do feel like they belong somewhere. I, when you were mentioning that before, I had to, a terrible thought that I've still got some stuff in my parents' garage and I'm, <laughs> I'm way too old for that to be the case. That's right. I think, you know, well, my mother died when I was 39 years old. It was a huge blow. And, you know, I'm, I'm a lot older now and I still haven't deleted her phone number from my phone. It, it feels too permanent. Mm. So we, we need yeah. these long term loving relationships and children that have had early trauma need it more than ever. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm an advocate for adoption. I know that's controversial in Australia, particularly. And I understand some of the history of that with the um, Aboriginal peoples and how they were treated by church groups, governments, uh, do-gooders. People thought it was the right thing to separate children from Aboriginal parents and try to breed that out of them by adopting them into white families. I understand that. And it was totally out of order. And it was tried to be done in Canada and similar stories in, in New Zealand and America as well. And and I would say two wrongs don't make a right. It was totally wrong what happened before. But to reject adoption 
And to deny children the option of having a permanent loving family is also wrong. And we need to be sensitive. We need to do this well. Uh, we need to make sure there isn't kind of racial disparity in these issues. But still, to help children find permanent loving families really matters. And so I'll, I'll be a, a lifelong advocate for adoption. I think it's been so helpful uh, for many children to know that loving, safe family. This situation where you're taking kids in an emergency place, and sometimes they'll stay with you for a few week, you know, a weekend or much longer. But gosh, there must be some heartbreak attached to this, both the situation initially, but also in saying goodbye to the kids. There definitely is, and you know, people need to go in with their eyes open. Sometimes people say to me, "Oh, Chris, I could never do what you and Miriam do." You know, I'd love the children too much to give them back, <laughs> and I'm going, "Okay, I kind of know what you're saying there, but we really need to interrogate what you mean by love. You'll love these children so much that because you might get hurt, you're not going to get involved in their lives at all. That isn't love. That's not what love is like." Love is about sacrifice, isn't it? Again, I, I'm a Christian. I take my cues and my definition for love from Jesus. You know, Jesus laid down his life that we might live. And so that's the model of love for me. I've got to be willing to lay down a whole bunch of things in order to help children to thrive and flourish. And, and to be honest, we're the grown-ups here. We should be able to take the hit. It is painful seeing a child that you've loved as your own flesh and blood for years move on and you know have an, a new life without you when you've been there everything you know we've looked after babies uh, and then you know had them adopted when they're four years old and, and we were the only family they knew it, it, it's incredibly painful we don't get to choose where these children go but we do get to choose how they're treated while they're with us and our job is to pour as much love and kindness and compassion into them as we can so they're ready to face life and to make new relationships as best they can. And in one sense, if it doesn't hurt when they go, you've done something wrong. You, you've held something back. And children need you. They need all of you. You need to be all in for this. This is Life and Faith. And today I'm speaking with Krish Kandaya, author, speaker, and advocate for fostering and adoption. His charity is called Home for Good. Chris is so positive and enthusiastic about this subject. He really believes in being able to make a huge difference. I asked him for some more good stories of real change that he's seen. So one of the happy endings for us is when children are able to go back to their birth families. Mm. I think wherever that's possible for a child to go back to their family, that's a win. If, for example, the circumstances of the family change, they're able to reform, they get the help they need, that's wonderful. So I remember one time we looked after this little boy. He was unbelievably cute, he, but when he came to us, he, he, he was thin, he, he was underweight, mal, uh, he had malnutrition, uh, and he became this kind of beautiful, bouncing baby. And our social workers, they, they traveled the earth to try and find this lad's birth father. His birth mum uh, ended up uh, with an addiction issue, so she couldn't have the child back. But the birth dad had been repatriated to another country and uh, he came. They found him. They, they brought him back. And we were mentoring him to be a dad to a child that he'd never known. And he asked us if we'd help him throw a party to celebrate that he was getting his son back. So we had all his mates come and, and, you know, I don't think we had a common language between us. We had lots of smiles and cheers, 
But there was something beautiful that this boy was going to live with his biological dad. It was amazing to make that happen. Or I think of another time when um, a lad turned up at our house and he was huge. You know, he was only 13, but he was taller than me. <laughs> and uh, he was all hunched over and, and really upset. He'd come straight from accident and emergency and he had a big bandage on his arm and a scar on his face. And there'd been a domestic violence situation that he'd been removed from. And he'd gone straight to the hospital. And he came into our house. And I'm normally quite good at chatting to people. I'm, I'm you know, I, I enjoy conversation. But no matter what I tried, I couldn't get a word out of him. And then my boys turned up. I think they were 12 and 13 at the time. And, and they used a therapeutic tool I wasn't aware of. It was called an Xbox. <laughs> and they challenged this guy to a game of soccer, you know, FIFA. And uh, he's Arsenal, my boys are Man United, and, and Arsenal won 5-0. <laughs> and my boys are going, nice shot, mate, well done, you're a professional. And I thought, whoa, this is a proud dad moment. You know, I don't care what grades they get at school, though, you know, it's great if they do the best they can. But here they're demonstrating something beautiful. They're demonstrating hospitality, kindness, encouragement. That's what I want to cheer on in my lads. And it was so exciting to see them do that. By the time it was evening, he was cracking jokes. He'd come out of himself. Yeah. He felt this was a safe place to call home. And he had a lot of healing to do still. But we were excited to see the progress that could be made, even just a few hours of feeling that this is a safe place and we're a safe family. Do you ever feel, I mean, sometimes people are so damaged by trauma and terrible things that have gone on in their home that there's a it's it's going to be really hard to break through and might even be dangerous like you might you know you spoke about the 13 year old boys bigger than you i think some people would think oh this am I, is this a safe responsible thing to be doing and you know i've got other kids that i'm responsible for and all that sort of stuff this, this i mean i would admit to some of this myself but i'm, I'm interested in your response to that because i think it's an important question and you've no doubt thought through what this means. To be honest, most of the time, this is a very safe thing to do. You know, you're looking after small children in our circumstances and, um, you know, they have experienced trauma. It's not their fault. Uh, if I was in their circumstances, I would want someone to step up and do what I'm doing for them. So it, yeah, it, it's very totally. safe. Um, sadly, because you're dealing with families that have been at the breaking point sometimes it can be pretty scary we've we've had death threats from the birth dad who was really angry that his children had been removed uh, from him and yeah. so you know we were asking our social workers what we were supposed to do they said oh don't worry we'll give you a special secret code that you can phone the police if there's a problem <laughs> and uh, we go okay one of our neighbors is a police officer we, we we asked them what that code did and they said it does absolutely nothing <laughs> <laughs> it's like some kind of security blanket. So, you know, you can't go in this, you know, rose-tinted glasses, hoping everything's going to be okay. But we're saying it, it's worth it for the sake of helping these children. These children deserve it, need it. You know, I, I believe every single human being has intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. That, that flows straight out of my Christian faith, but you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. And if we believe it, that everyone has dignity, value, and worth, then we need to show it. And these kids need us to step up and do that. I mean, some people are worried that this is going to negatively impact their birth children, that if you start doing this, it will damage them or somehow set them back. And I can understand that. 
and and you know you need to be responsible you know your own birth children you know what they can cope with and what they can't but to be honest i've seen being an older sibling to children in care bring out the best in my kids uh, my daughter i told you she's gone to university she still phones back to check in on the younger foster children because she knows that her moving on has been quite traumatic for them and so she just wants to reassure them that she's okay that's that's coming from an 18 year old 18 year olds are supposed to be into instagram and party lifestyle and all that kind of stuff but i've seen fostering bring a lovely compassionate gracious side out of my kids and it, it's been a joy to watch what are the ways you broadly try to motivate people to open their hearts and their imaginations to to these this big challenge so I, I guess I've got two modes. As a Christian, I call my Christian community the church to action. And actually, the, we're finding a great deal of receptivity there because mm. part of the Christian story is that every Christian has been adopted into God's family. And, you know, every time Christians pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, we're reaffirming that God is our heavenly Father. And we only get that because of his mercy, his grace and adoption. Jesus is the only true eternal son of God. We're all sons and daughters of God through adoption. And we motivate people by saying, look, for most people, they think adoption is just the third worst way to have a child. You know, there's natural birth. For some people, there's IVF. And if that doesn't work, well, there's always adoption. And when you come at adoption that way because of infertility, you often want a baby the baby that you've been unable to have. And so babies get adopted very quickly while older children, sibling groups, children from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, children with additional needs, they wait the longest. And so I say to the Christian church, you know, God didn't adopt you because he was lonely or struggling to have his own kids. God adopted you not because he needed it, but because we needed it. So would you step up and be the parents that these children need? And we've seen all sorts of people come forward in churches. We've seen single people come forward saying, you know what, I'd love to have a husband or a wife to help me raise a child. But I think I could do a great job of being a mum or a dad on my own. And maybe with the church community support, we can make a go of this. And we've seen churches wrap around those singles as they adopt. We've seen millennials adopt before they've tried to have birth children. And that's blown the minds of social workers. They can't understand that. And uh, we had a Guardian article written about these early adopters. I thought that was a really <laughs> nice phrase they used. Yes. We've had people with kids like us. We've had kids, uh, people whose kids have left home and they're empty nesters and they've done it. So we'll, we'll motivate Christians using the kind of core message of the Christian faith. And there's resonance there. But for the rest of society, uh, we're using the same mindset. We're saying, look, could you be the difference? Could you come and be the parent that children need you to be? Um, and we've seen lots of our friends. We, we've got lots of friends that don't share Christian faith. And one of them told me the other day, um, you know, I, I was making money, but I wasn't making a difference. Fostering is allowing me to make a difference in someone's life. And I said, oh, man, that's brilliant. How can I cheer you on? What can we do to kind of support you in that? Tell me a little bit more about this Christian concept of hospitality. I mean, hospitality just means to welcome the stranger. And all the way through the Bible, God seems to show particular interest in vulnerable people groups. So if you read the Old Testament, often God is talking about concern for the stranger, which is uh, often a, a refugee. The widow, uh, that's a, a, a person that's been bereaved. And because there was no kind of social welfare system, they were particularly vulnerable. And the orphan. 
and the orphan often means someone who doesn't live under the protection of a father. So those three groups, widow, orphan and stranger, are mentioned over and over and over again. And it's one of the things that I love about God, actually. You know, when you meet people who are uncertain about their own kind of self-esteem, they'll normally name drop someone famous as quickly as possible that they've met. But why do they do that? They name drop famous people so that they get some kind of halo effect and they feel important. But when God wants to tell you who he is, he name drops the poor and the marginalized and and the outcast and the stranger and the widow and the orphan. And that's the kind of God that I want to follow. And if I want to follow him, that means I need to show the same regard and care and concern that God has shown to me and to all people. Jesus put it really clearly in probably his most challenging parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. And he said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And so what I need to do when I see another person in need, I need to see this. This is someone who represents Jesus to me. Here's an opportunity for me to put my love for God and my faith into practical action. Because whatever I do for the least um, wealthy or the least um, powerful person, I'm doing as an act of worship for Jesus. So one last call to pay here's your here's your opportunity here chris you know tell us what <laughs> why we should even consider this even if it's something we've never thought about before well i'll give you two reasons many people care about issues like homelessness sexual exploitation people trafficking and, and people in prison many people care about those groups of people i think that's fantastic and we need to turn the volume up on those issues that's great and people like it on twitter and share it on facebook and call the government to do stuff about it brilliant i say why don't we get involved in these people's lives when they're three or four years old and they need a loving permanent family let's get involved further upstream to help children become the adults that they were born to be so now that's one reason uh, the second reason is a more selfish reason i don't know of a more joyful experience than watching a child who's had a really tough start in life grow and flourish. I came home from work one day and it had been a rubbish day at work. Everything had gone wrong, infighting in the office, just rubbish all through. And I came through the front door and I was completely exhausted. I wanted to just throw myself on the sofa and just watch Netflix for the next six hours. And then there's a three-year-old boy in my house and he's begging me that we go to the park. Right, right. And uh, this was the biter boy. Who Remember the boy that couldn't speak when he turned up? Now he's persuading me and he won't stop that we need to go to the park. And, and there we are. We're in the park. And this was the day we took him on his bicycle and we took the training wheels, the stabilizers off the bicycle. And he's zooming around the park and he's, he's shouting, <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> I'm nearly in tears because I'm thinking, I know the story of this boy. I know what he was like when he first came to us. And now he's beaming he's he's just so full of joy and that joy is infectious i don't know of a greater joy than helping children have great moments in their lives knowing the trauma they've had in their past so it's a great gift to the children but weirdly wonderfully it's a great gift to you as well this has been life and faith with me simon smart it's been great to have your company Chris Dyer is the author of many books, including Home for Good, which is also the name of the charity he founded that promotes foster care and adoption. Please do let your friends know about this episode and leave us a rating or review. We want to get life and faith out to more and more people, and we rely on you to help do that. Next week, 
uh, I don't think anyone can really get their head around it. These sort of things where you feel like in, a, in your scientific career that your work will build towards something that is, you know, you put hours in, you know, days and stuff in, all this hard work, and then feel as if like, maybe the greatest scientific achievement you had was just rocking up to a room and getting a needle stabbed in your arm. I hope it would be more of that, my other work would be more significant, but maybe that will be always a, a fun anecdote, I guess, in the future.